people that were a wonderful thing. I'm going to dismiss our, our kids um, to Children's Church at the present time. I'll let you guys go ahead and get out of here. Make like a tree and leaf. And as our opening scripture, I'd like to just show you a little video clip. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it, because all the people hung on his words.
Turn to Luke chapter 19, either in your uh, Bible or your device, or both. The section normally um, referred to as the triumphal entry begins in verse 28, but we will look at both the beginning and the end of that, the, the before and the after, a little bit, just to give ourselves some context. But just by show of hands, just being honest, how many of you have ever been completely clueless before? Cheerfully so? You know, I, you know being clueless is only bad when you find out that you were clueless. There, I mean, I, sometimes I walk into a situation and I know completely that I don't know what's going on. I mean, in my house... There's lots of conversations that I know are taking place. I have no idea what they're saying. I can't understand a word. I mean, I can hear the words, but I don't have a clue what it means or why they're laughing so hard. I just don't have a clue about that, but I know I don't have a clue. The worst thing is when someone walks into a situation and doesn't know they don't have a clue and begin to think that they do. And, and, and that person is to be pitied. <laughs> you just look and see, you poor soul. If you only knew what you were saying right now, you would stop talking. <laughs> clueless. Being clueless is part of the human nature. We just, we do that, and we do it well. So here's the question that, um, I, in regards to lots of Bible texts, but this one, I'm just going to pop it in here. Why didn't God just make it completely crystal clear to everyone on planet Earth, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I mean, why didn't, why didn't he consistently and over all of creation peek his head through the clouds and say, hey, this is God up here. Stop it. <laughs> Quit it. I mean, I mean you know, if, if we were to write that, it probably wouldn't go so well. It didn't. And I think, well, he did. God did do things like that. He did make himself obvious in very clear ways that they still didn't get. They heard a voice from heaven. Oh, was that thunder? Maybe an angel spoke to him. We don't know. He came in fire. He came in cloud. He came in great amounts of miracles and deliverance, and they still didn't get it. There are plenty of times when God showed up in very clear and supernatural ways and um, through creation, through um, miracles, through the prophets in the Old Testament. Um, look at Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is one of the, I mean, a major prophet in the Old Testament. Um, and he sees a vision of the Lord, high and lifted up, and in the temple... All he saw basically was the, the train of his robe and, and the lower part of God's feet. Is, and the rest of it was above the ceiling somewhere, and he couldn't fathom that. All he could see was the, the very edge of the robe and the glory and the smoke, and he says, I'm dead. I'm a dead man. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm, I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. I, I'm a goner. 
But look at how God interacts with Isaiah in verse 6 of chapter 6. One of the seraphs, that is like an angelic being, a spiritual being, flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. It's interesting that the spiritual being, the angelic being, lifted the coal not with his own fingers or whatever the angels have, but he didn't dare touch that, that atonement altar. He used the tools that God said to use. But yet he touched Isaiah's mouth with it. I'm wondering if Isaiah had a scar the rest of his life. He had a burn mark. I'm, I'm thinking this was a literal thing. Right here. Your sin is atoned for. That had to hurt. And then God told him, I have, a, I have a mission for you. This is something you're going to do. Listen here, Isaiah. Um, oh, actually, well, I got that backwards. Isaiah heard a voice saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. And this is what God said. Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull, close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. That doesn't sound very results-oriented. <laughs> doesn't sound very successful in a mission. And, and Isaiah just says, well, how long? How long is this going to take? How long do you want me to do this? And God says, until the cities lie ruined without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. That's intense. That's a God who says, I, I have sent you word, I have sent you miracles, I have sent all these things to you and all these people to you and you still do not get it. You are still willfully without a clue. And so in Luke 19, we're given a parable. Flip back a page if you have to um, and look at Luke 19, 11. While they were listening to this, he went, on, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. They were anticipating something. And, G and he said, Jesus said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Who do you think he's talking about? He's talking about himself. So he called ten servants and gave them ten, uh, well, minas is a monetary, it's I don't know, pounds of silver, about three months wages if your little note says that. He gave them all this money and says, put the money to work until I come back. 
And this might sound like a familiar parable, you know, the parable of the talents, but this is a different version of that. And verse 14 says, but his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. There's another narrative going on here that Jesus is trying to tell them. It's not just, I'm going to give you some stuff to take care of here. I'm the king and you don't want me to be. And at one other point, Jesus', Jesus disciples asked him, why do, you, why do you always talk to the people in parables? Matthew 13. His disciples are a little confused. Why do, you, why do you always do that? They always seem to be confused. Like Jesus, if you would just say what you're thinking, if you just come right out with it and be clear, you might gain some more momentum here. But you're always speaking in mystery and cryptic language and parables. How come? And Jesus answered them in the words of Isaiah 6. Because they're always hearing, but they're never understanding. They're always seeing, but they're never perceiving. Otherwise, they might turn and they'd be healed. And I wonder when he said that, if the disciples ran through the rest of chapter 6, and how long, O Lord, until the cities lie desolate, until everything's in ruins. It's getting a little intense. And I hear John 1, John chapter 1, Though the world was made through Jesus, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. And so he gets done with this parable, and in Luke 19, we pick up the narrative. Chapter 28, I'm sorry, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going to Jerusalem. He approached Bethphage and Bethany at a hill called the Mount of Olives and sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, tell him the Lord needs it. And those who were sent ahead went it, found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. They rehearsed the speech all the way there. Like, we're going to go steal a colt? What? We're just going to find it, start to untie it? I hope nobody sees us. And then they get caught. Oh, uh, the Lord needs it. Whew. Okay, that Jedi trick worked. Okay, let's go. You know, so I, it, it had to be weird. Um, these are not the colts you're looking for. You know, that kind of thing. I, I don't know. Just, what is it with the donkey? What is it with the cold thing? What's it mean? Sometimes the people explain it as a, uh, a sign of humility. Like a king coming in on a, on a donkey. That's a little backwards. You don't normally think of a king on a little colt. And so it's Jesus' humility coming through. Well, I suppose... He didn't ride in on a war horse, you know, armor blazing or whatever, sword flashing. But there's more to it than that. There's way more than that. Why would a king ride into town on something as small and tame as a donkey's colt? 
because there are no threats to him. He doesn't have to be prepared for battle. He's already won. This is a victory lap. This is reminiscent of when King David, a thousand years before, is on his deathbed and says to his people there, go grab my donkey and put my son Solomon on it and parade him around saying, this is the next king. This is, that son of David got a ride on a donkey saying he's the king. And then the son of David got on a donkey and said, I'm the king. They would have understood this completely as this proclamation. Jesus is making a very loud, quiet claim on his kingship. And Zechariah 9 Verse 9 floats through everybody's mind when it says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and humble, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's interesting when, um, in the text, when the disciples go get the colt, It says there in verse 33, as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? What I found was, in the original language, it says, as they were untying the colt, its lords asked them. The lords of the donkey. That's the word, kurios. The lords of the donkey ask, what are you doing? Well, the Lord needs it. Who's the Lord of the donkey? It's Lord's or the Lord. Jesus is Lord of that little donkey. And he was laying claim to it. And then the people begin to celebrate. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it. This is verse 35. Put Jesus on it. And as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And this is not a new thing either. They would, this is in a first, King Jehu walked, you know, rode into town. They spread cloaks over him in a victory lap as, as he entered the town. This is nothing new. They're saying something about this, about who he is. And then he came to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is in every other gospel, but Luke says something different next. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Where else do you hear glory in the highest in the gospel of Luke? When the angels announce the birth. Peace on earth to whom his favor rests. And then when the king grows up, and marches into town, then it's peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There's peace on on earth, there's peace in heaven, and there's peace between God and man. He's about to do what nobody else could ever accomplish. He's about to bring peace between heaven and earth. And then... This whole thing resonates with Psalm 118. I know I'm bouncing around here, but um, I, I wish I could just camp out in one place and, and take you to one place. But there's, 
there's a place I need to take you, and I need the scripture reader to come on up and help me do it. Come on up here, Savannah. Let's go ahead and stand as we read this. I will be reading Psalm 118, 22 out of 29. <clears throat> the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Please, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, please give us success. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God shining upon us. Take the sacrifice and bind it with cords on the altar. You are my God and God, and I will praise you. You are my God and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Thank you. You guys can have a seat. This entire psalm has, and for centuries, the Jewish people have understood this is a messianic psalm. This is a psalm that tells us about the coming Christ, the chosen one. And you may have heard different phrases that you didn't know were all strung together um, that maybe you were familiar with. The thing that I opened up with, this is, the day, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. In the middle of this psalm of the Messiah. You may have recognized Jesus quoted, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Speaking of himself, the builders being the Pharisees and the teachers of the law rejected him, but that stone has become the cornerstone, the capstone. And the Lord has done this. What's another name for, oh Lord, save us? One word. What is it? Hmm? Begins with an H. Say it louder. Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is, oh Lord, save us. Blessed is he. From the house of the Lord we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine with, with the bows and the bows, the bows, what is, how do you pronounce that? Booges? You know? With branches in hand. Join in the festal procession, in the festive parade, up to where? The horns of the altar. That's the second time in that psalm that talks about the altar. There's so much Jesus in this psalm. So much is fulfilled here. Passover is all about the, the lamb that was slain, the blood of the lamb painted over the doorposts of the people of Israel in Egypt as the angel of death went over them because their house was protected by the blood of the lamb. And here Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And instead of a lamb being tied to the horns of the altar, the lamb of God was nailed to a cross. Instead of slitting the throat of the lamb and its blood sprinkled on the altar, Jesus' blood is spilled out and absorbed into the earth, and his blood is the final atonement of sin for us all. And there's 
parts in this psalm about defeating the enemy and marching in victory. The enemy that Jesus defeated was death and sin and the power of death and hell itself. Jesus defeated the devil. He came to destroy the work of the evil one. And he's riding in victory on a humble donkey, claiming his kingship. And he endured the cross, the wrath of the Father, so he could say in, in a couple of verses before that I didn't have Savannah read. Verse 19, Open for me the gates of righteousness, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. And I will give you thanks, for you answered me, and have become my salvation. He is the stone the builders rejected. The whole crowd, the whole crowd, there were hundreds of them. I don't know how many people were marching up the road into Jerusalem. This was a major feast of the Jews. There were thousands of people from all over the known world gathered in this city. And Jesus inserts himself strategically right in the middle of it. And they respond to him in faith and belief for all the miracles they had seen. And what kind of response do they get? Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Calm down. Just, no, just be quiet. Just rebuke them. Tell them to stop. Do they, do they know what they're saying? Do they understand what they're talking about. And Jesus said, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the very rocks will start to sing. You can't stop this. It's creation itself is waking to the redemption that's about to be had. The trouble is with this entire scenario Jesus is the, really, Jesus is the only one who knows exactly what's going on here. The, the, the 12 disciples are in a continual state of confusion. Have you noticed this? They're, they're well-intentioned, bumbling guys that I can really relate with. They, they get it and then they don't. And then they try to go forward and say something good and then like, oh, I messed that up again. And but we're with you, Jesus. We're going we're gonna to hang with you as long as we can, and then we're going to run away because we're scared. But we're going we're gonna to go there with you, and, and uh, we don't know what's going on. <laughs> They're clueless, and for the most part, they know it. But the people in the parade, as much as they were responding to the miracles of Jesus and as much as they were happy about him coming in to be their king, and the whole, the whole city was in an uproar. They're clueless too. They don't really get it because for the most part, what they want is a king that comes in and just kicks all the Romans out. We're tired of being oppressed. Hundreds of years, we haven't had our own nation. We haven't had our own people. We want our king back. We want our sovereignty. And this guy might just do it. They're clueless. It's, he's not the king that they want. It's not the kingdom that he's come to bring. But, man, they sure like Jesus. 
They saw Lazarus come out of the grave. They saw miracles happen. And they're expecting an earthly king with an earthly rule. And the Pharisees, oh, those poor guys, they're, they're, they're more, more than clueless. They're in complete rebellion. Their hearts are so hard. They think they can just shut their mouths and make them go home. They feel like everybody there is, is blaspheming. Do you understand what the praises you're giving this man are reserved for God alone? And they're saying, do you happen to see all those soldiers up on that wall? Do you know what they're carrying? They're carrying sword and spear and they are listening to you. They're, they're watching this big old parade and this big old party and they are waiting for just the right reason to just knock us all down really hard. They would love that. So shut up. Stop making so much noise. They're going to stop. They're going to stop us. They're going to take away our place and take away our power. Just be quiet. Clueless. Utterly clueless. The city of Jerusalem is clueless. They don't know the disaster is coming. You know, when, when Jonah went to go preach to Nineveh, he had a five-word sermon. Five words. Forty, in, in the Hebrew. But 40 days and Nineveh falls. Basically, was was his sermon. He just went around saying the same thing. 40 day, you got 40 days and then you're going to be done. 40 days. And they repented. <laughs> they turned themselves around. They got serious about the Lord. Jerusalem has 40 years. This generation, Jesus says, will not pass away until all these things have taken place. And look at, look at the, uh, the contrast between the shouts and the joy and the parade and Jesus in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now it's hidden from your eyes the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side they will dash you to the ground you and the children within your walls they will not leave one stone on another why because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you And lastly, I guess, I, was, I guess the donkey was clueless. I mean, you think about that just for a minute. Somewhere in our house, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't go try to find it, but some, maybe you have a book like this too, but there's a little children's book that's completely, you know, it's made up. But the point is that uh, the donkey's colt, the little donkey that never been ridden, he gets yanked by some strangers and all of a sudden there's some person sitting on him. He didn't know what that was all about, but mom was behind him, so it's okay. So he just keeps on walking and all of a sudden there's this big parade. People start shouting and smiling and he's never walked on people's cloaks before and people's never waving branches at him before. And he goes, well, I must be something special, you know. And he just starts, he completely forgot about who he was carrying and thought this parade was for him completely clueless. 
And I don't know, you know, obviously that probably didn't cross the donkey's mind, but it's a little lesson for us regardless. But you've got to wonder if, um, if Jesus had some a little supernatural communication, Dr. Doolittle moment, with this little guy saying, you know, it's going to be okay. I'm going to, you know, I'm just going to get on your back and you're going to carry me for a while. And, you know, he's the Lord of all creation. He can do something like that. But I'm sure even then, in this limited understanding, the donkey was just being obedient. He didn't have a clue what was going on. He just did his work. And when he was done, they took him back to his owners, and he hauled hay or grain or whatever. And I think that we are clueless much of the time. (laughs) I don't know how you're clueless. I, I can sometimes get where I'm clueless, but maybe you can relate to one or more of the people here in this story. Whether it's, you know, the people in the parade, you're giving thanks to God, you're, you're praising him for all he's done, and sometimes just mixed with selfish motives. And so, you know, we're going we're gonna to praise you, Jesus, but it's for what you can do for me. And we're going to praise you, God, and thank you for all your blessings. But when things get quiet, and we're going to, you know, start complaining at you because it's not what we expected. Sometimes we're clueless like that. And maybe we're like the Pharisees. I mean, there are, there are some Christians who act like Pharisees, like don't get too excited. You know what I mean? Just, just keep, your, keep calm down. Don't make so much noise. You know, don't get radical. You know, um, we can get too rules-oriented and quench the spirit. Or maybe we are clueless like the donkey might have been, just doing our job, not even caring about the celebration right in front of us, and we're just plodding along, and we just kind of ignore the party, and we just, well, if we're faithful, joyless but faithful, we just keep on going, thanks for noticing me, you know. And we, we miss, we miss the party, or, or maybe we're too into ourselves and think the party's about us, and it's all about, it's all about us. And maybe... We're like the city of Jerusalem that we just avoid the subject of future judgment entirely. (laughs) We don't want to hear it. We don't think it'll happen to us. Surely not. I mean, a God of love? You know? Judgment? Ah. I think there are a lot of of folks who who walk through life and they, they... They know they're not right with God. And they're not walking in obedience, and they deep in their heart, they maybe even fear that they're they're not they're not headed for eternal life. If there is such a thing, I'm probably not gonna make it. And if that's if that's you, you need to see Jesus weeping over this city. You need to understand his heart for the people that he knew were going to just be demolished less than a generation later. Some people have this idea of God being a vengeful judge who just takes pleasure in crushing. No, no, that is not his wishes. These are not his wants. He wants everyone to come to repentance. But he will not stay his hand forever or he would not be a God of love. And if you don't know that Jesus is weeping over you, you need to. You need to understand he's calling out, come back to me or come to me 
to begin with. Don't ignore the time of God's coming to you. Don't ignore what he's trying to say to you. Which leads me to my last question. Do you recognize Jesus when you see him? Do you recognize his voice when you hear it? Do you understand his heart for you and the people around you when you feel it? I mean, have you tried to sort through your cluelessness and try to discern actually what's happening here? What or who are you expecting when you think of seeing Jesus or hearing Jesus or knowing the truth? What are you expecting? Are, are you confused or are you clueless about your king? Why is he on a donkey? What is he so humble and lowly for? Why is he, I thought he'd be different. I thought he'd be taller. I thought he'd be better looking. I thought he would smell better. I thought he would have more money. I thought he would be nice to me. I thought this king would actually look at me when I talked to him. I thought he would want to actually do the right thing and say the right thing. I, I thought Jesus would have his act together. But Jesus himself said that you'd recognize him if he looked in the least likely places, amongst the poor, the hungry, the weak, amongst the thirsty, the sick, the incarcerated. Jesus said the ones who recognize him and do something about it will be rewarded with eternal life. And the ones who ignore him and don't do anything about seeing him or recognizing him will be cast into eternal punishment. Have you recognized Jesus in your neighborhood or, or in your own family? or Have you recognized him? Do you see him coming? Are you aware that just like Jerusalem, there's judgment to come if we don't see him in the places and people that he's revealed himself. It's not just Jerusalem that's, that, is, that was destroyed. All of us will be held accountable one day. And one day, it won't be Jesus on a donkey returning. It will be Jesus on a white horse, a war horse, a rider called Faithful and True. I'm in Revelation 19. And with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are blazing fire. His head, on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself, and he's dressed in a robe dipped in blood. This is before he ever goes into battle. Whose blood is it? It's his. It's his own. And his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, his words, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with an iron scepter, and he treads the winepress 
of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We can feel sorry for the city of Jerusalem because they did not recognize, they would not see, they, didn't, they would not understand, they would not open their hearts to God's visiting them. But I think we can pass him by, we can ignore him, we can not recognize his coming just as well, just as bad as they did. And as a people, there, there will be, as there was then, something to answer to. But the good news is he took on the punishment for our sins. He bore the pain that we ourselves deserve. Are your eyes open? Are your ears listening? Would you be one of the festal crowd that would celebrate his coming even if you didn't quite get it? Or would you be the one standing back saying, I don't think so. I don't want any part of that. That's too radical for me. It's just too noisy. I don't even know that I know that guy. I don't even think that he's it, you know. If you haven't been listening, if you, don't, if you didn't even know what you were missing, if this message is brand new and you're like, I don't even know what he's talking about, uh, there is time today for you to respond and for you to get into conversation with, with me or with one of our elders. And in fact, after service every Sunday, there are two or more of our elders right here in this classroom that would love to talk and pray over you and talk to you about what it is to receive this king into your life and for the cross that he bore to, to be the substitution for your punishment. You don't have to bear it. It's not yours. It's his to carry. It's your reward to receive. It's your gift that he gave. Don't ignore it. Don't leave it. Sit there. Recognize that God is coming. He's come. He's here and he's coming back to receive his own to himself, the ones who did receive, the ones who did recognize, the ones who did say yes. I'm going to invite the worship team back up here. And we're going to prepare ourselves for a time of invitation and, and then communion. If, if you have a decision or talk, you, you need to talk to somebody. I'm, I'm going to be right over here. If you want to wait until after the service, you can do that. I'll be right over here or I'll be at the door. Don't let this day go by without at least asking the question, what do I need to do to be saved? Let's pray together. Uh, back in mid-March, we decided to go camping at Big Hill Lake for the weekend. Uh, Lindsay had to work on Friday, so the kids and I headed down to the lake Friday morning. Uh, we had a great time, but both of them did something that got me to thinking I'd like to share it with you. First of all, if you don't know my son, Jace, he turned two yesterday, but has been in his terrible twos for the last six or eight months. I'm not sure how you could pack so much distraction in such a small frame, but he tears stuff up at a record pace with a grin on his face and a twinkle in his eyes. At one point, we were in a camper getting ready to go down and throw rocks into the water. 
Jace was sitting on the floor facing away from Emma and I, and he had a book in his lap, and he was flipping through the book and reading or talking or whatever nonstop. Emma was finishing a Pop-Tart, and I asked her to put her shoes on. She placed a Pop-Tart on the bed, went to grab her shoes, but said, Daddy, don't let anybody touch this. Jace immediately slammed the book, turned around to see what was going on, and looked for whatever it was he was not supposed to touch. He had no idea what it was he was not supposed to touch, only that he needed to touch it. He went from being good to looking for trouble in a half a second. I just shook my head and got to thinking, how many times am I doing something good and I hear the tempter whisper in my ear, and I'm up doing something I shouldn't be with alarming speed? I can confess to you that I've been reading the Bible, came across a verse, slammed the Bible shut and jumped up and started judging and condemning someone. Embarrassing, isn't it? That Friday evening, about 6.30, was one of those rare occasions when a four-year-old girl is so completely worn out that she doesn't want to do anything except sit beside the fire and talk to her daddy. It was really nice, actually. We got on the topic of school, and I asked her who her best friend was. She turned to me and said, Daddy, you're my best friend. Well, that made me very happy, but I didn't think she understood me, so I pressed on. (laughs) No, who do you like to play with, I asked. She looked hurt and replied, you're the only one I want to play with. You're my best friend and will always be my best friend. Now I thought, oh, sweetheart, you're only saying that now. If your cousins showed up right now, you would run to play with them. (laughs) If your grandparents came by, you would jump up and run and sit by them. If I asked if you wanted my phone, you would grab it, run to the camper, watch a video, and completely forget about me. I'm your best friend now, but I know in one hour when I tell you it's time to go to bed, I will be mean, mean daddy, And you will whisper to Jace, telling him to call me Mean Daddy, which he will do with a grin and a twinkle. That happened, by the way. I can't help but think my relationship with Jesus is a little like this. I wonder if when I pray to Jesus and tell him I love him and want a relationship with him more than anything else, that he will always be my best friend, he thinks. Oh, Aaron, you say that now, but what happens when life does not go perfectly? What happens when worldly possessions catch your eye? What happens when that addiction rears its ugly head? What about when you become selfish and try to do things your own way instead of trusting me? What about those times when you seemingly forget about me and people around you cannot tell you're a Christian based on your actions? Now, I didn't say those things to Emma. Instead, I stretched out my arms, scooped her up, hugged her, and told her I loved her. And I don't think Jesus thinks those things. Instead, he stretched out his arms and was nailed to a cross in my place to save me. And in doing so, showed me how much he loved me. And he has done the same for you. Think about this. The God of the universe, the creator of everything, loved us enough to come to earth to willingly die in our place so that we might spend eternity with him. Two of my favorite verses are these. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only was one and only Son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. As we come around the communion table, I challenge each of us to search out those things that are coming between us and God. I pray that we will never fall for the lie that our own sins are beyond his power to forgive. As Easter is almost here, I pray that we would see how amazing his gift is and how much he loves us. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you during this time of communion with thankful hearts. Please help us to examine our hearts and to remember that if we confess our sins, you will be faithful and just to forgive. 
Most of all, we thank you for your son, and it is in his name we pray. Amen.
Would you bow with me? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for all the many gifts and blessings that you give us each and every day. It's at this time in the service that we'd like to return a portion of those gifts to further your kingdom here on earth. Bless them in your son Jesus' name. Amen.